Well, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for joining the Free Domain Radio Sunday chat, November the 11th, 2007, just after 4 p.m. New York time, and it is Remembrance Day. I did a video this morning, which you can find on YouTube. It's also FDR 907, which is um, uh, the um, uh, on Remembrance Day issues and so on. There's two other little things that I'd like to mention, uh, one of which I've mentioned on the board before. Uh, let me start with this, uh, this first one, which is around veterans and the homelessness. So this is from NewsYahoo.com and was uh, published on um, the 8th of November, 2007. It says here, Washington, veterans make up one in four homeless people in the United States, though they are only 11% of the general adult population, according to a report to be released Thursday. And homelessness is not just a problem among middle-aged and elderly veterans. Younger veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan are trickling into shelters and soup kitchens seeking services, treatment, or help with finding a job. The Veterans Affairs Department has identified 1,500 homeless veterans from the current wars and say 400 of them have participated in its programs specifically targeting homelessness. Although we could say that the military itself is a program specifically targeting homelessness insofar as the creation thereof. The National Alliance to End Homelessness, a public education nonprofit, based the findings of its report on numbers from Veterans Affairs and the Census Bureau. 2005 data estimated that 1,000, sorry, 194,254 homeless people out of the 744,313 on any given night were veterans. In comparison, the VA says that 20 years ago, the estimated number of veterans who were homeless on any given night was 250,000 versus um, 194,254. Some advocates say the early presence of veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan at shelters does not bode well for the future. It took roughly a decade for the lives of Vietnam veterans to unravel to the point that they started showing up among the homeless. Advocates worry that intense and repeated deployments leave newer veterans particularly vulnerable. We're going to be having a tsunami of them eventually because the mental health toll from this war is enormous, said Daniel Tooth, Director of Veterans Affairs uh, for Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. While services to homeless veterans have improved in the past 20 years, advocates say more financial resources still are needed with the spotlight on the plight of Iraq veterans. They hope more will be done to prevent homelessness and provide affordable housing to the younger veterans while there's still a window of opportunity. So uh, this is available on uh, Free Domain Radio. Um, you can look at it, uh, freedomainradio.com forward slash board, um, forward slash forums, thread 100261.aspx. And I just wanted to um, mention a little bit about this uh, because the whole concept of war is uh, around the destruction either of the bodies or of the souls of human beings. And... What is never talked about, as I have repeatedly mentioned over and over, uh, what is never talked about is the fact that these people are murderers, and they're paid murderers. And uh, that, is a, uh, that is the real horror of war. The real horror of war is that people are paid to be murderers. And when you uh, are paid to be a murderer, and you cheer about it, and you feel that it is a wonderful, gorgeous, and positive thing to do so, then your soul is going to die and you will be unable to love and you will be unable to find peace and you will be unable to find happiness. And the very kindest thing that we can do for veterans is the one thing that people 
just won't do. The one thing that we need to do for our veterans is to help them by identifying the truth of their condition. I'll say it again. The one thing that we need to do for veterans is to help them understand the nature of their condition or their affliction by telling them the truth. And it may not be telling them the truth. It just may be telling people who cheer them on the truth. I saw a uh, Dr. Phil once where Dr. Phil was praising uh, an Iraqi, a 20-year-old, a 19 or 20-year-old Iraqi soldier, uh, soldier, U.S. soldier who'd been to Iraq. You know, we're all so proud of you over there, going over there, defending our freedom, and blah, 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 blah. And this guy just looked so depressed. Every time we praise these soldiers, we sink them further into an ungodly and unbelievable kind of depression, a sinkhole of nihilism. Every time we praise murderers, and when I say murderers, I don't mean that these guys woke up and said, I want to be a serial killer. They woke up and wanted to serve their country because lies were told to them before they went, and then they went and experienced the horror of being a paid killer, a hitman, a murderer, a slaughterer, a butcher, a criminal. And then we continue to sink them in the fantasy of praise until they are no longer visible even to themselves and their histories are incomprehensible because nobody is telling them the truth that they were fooled into being killers and that they are killing to defend a society that praises murderers. That they are killing to defend a society, a ruling class, an educational system that praises murderers. There is an article in the uh, Globe and Mail called Every Soldier's Very Finest Remembrancer. And in it, this, um, the writer, Rex Murphy, talks about Rolf Wilfred Owen, who is a British poet, and I read a good uh, number of the um, Siegfried Sassoon and, and, and these people. During the uh, time I was doing research for the book that I read today, uh, part of the book, the book that I read part of today in, in FDR 907, and he is considered to be, along with Siegfried Sassoon, one of the finest First World War poets. I'm going to read to you a couple of lines that are considered to be the most famous from his poems, and again, see if you can figure out what is missing. What passing bells for these who die as cattle? Only the monstrous anger of the guns, only the stuttering rifles. Rapid, rapid. These are the first lines of the anthem for doomed youth. Anthem for doomed youth. That's uh, the uh, the title of his uh, of his poem. Another um, part of this uh, poem is he says this: No mockeries now for them, no prayers nor bells, nor any voice of mo- mourning save the choirs the shrill, demented choirs of wailing shells and bugles calling for them from sad shires. 
And uh, here he uh, goes uh, and works, works his um, metaphorical pen to near bleeding point uh, in order to, um, uh, to make this, uh, uh, this point about the suffering of the soldiers. And he says, Bent double like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue. And the last thing here, he says, um, the writer says, he is a very finest remembrancer of every soldier who has been in battle. And as we approach November the 11th, there is no voice more kindly tuned to the memory of all who have fallen in any war than the man who wrote that, this is another quote from Wilfred Owen, the pallor of girls' brows shall be their pall, their flowers the tenderness of patient minds, and each slow dusk, a drawing down of blinds. Now, it could be because it's hard to rhyme the word bayonet. It could be because it's hard to rhyme the word murder, or slaughter, or genocide, or serial killer, or hitman. But all you ever read about is how these people suffered. The fallen, those who nobly gave their lives to protect our freedoms. I have never read a single war poem that is not rank and dripping with self-pity. It is an entire manufactured manipulative charade from hell. I have never read a war poem which describes what it's like to bayonet a boy in the belly. I have never read a war poem that describes what it's like to walk through a village where body parts are raining down from shells that you have fired or grenades that you have thrown. I have never read a war poem that describes the unholy glee of shooting another man through the head or bayoneting women and children or driving tanks over people. And until we get that horror, until we stop focusing on the suffering and start focusing on the slaughter, it's never going to end. As long as we can think of the rank mutual self-slaughter of 10 million people and say that a line like, and each slow dusk a drawing down of blinds, what does that have to do with fuck all to do with war? They were marching in their sleep. To what? To kill. To murder. To break bones. To rip out intestines. To sever limbs. 
to decapitate, to inflame, to gas, to poison, to kill, to kill. And the reason that the veterans are homeless is because they are mass murderers. And until and unless we are willing to identify that cancer and that plague in our midst, they will continue to be homeless. And everyone says, oh, well, the veterans, we care so much about the veterans. Then stop pretending they're anything other than what they are. In the globe uh, that I held up earlier, the title of the article was a family of fighters family of fighters. You know, like there are pugilists or maybe people who fight cancer. A family of killers. A family of slaughterers. A family of murderers for hire. Can you imagine if we actually put that truth in front of people? And it is true. Paid to kill. There was an article about the Noble War, of the Second World War, and uh, in it, the, um, the woman was talking about her father, who was in the Second World War, and he was saying, she quoted him as saying, I'm totally against this war in Iraq. What the hell did the Iraqis ever do to me? Totally against the war in Afghanistan. What did the Afghanis ever do to me? Well, what the fuck did the Germans ever do to him? It's just blood-soaked stories. This is the mythology of murder. And as long as that mythology, that bloody rag fog, continues to coat the endless mountains of human flesh, carved, split, broken, and bloody, as long as the fog of words and cowardly intellectuals continues to cover these mountains of the dead, they will continue to grow they will continue to be piled on until we can peel back this befuddling and befogging layer of words from the endless faces of the slaughtered, from the cold and dead eyes who stare upwards for any kind of justice after their life. Until we can imagine what it's like to do honor to the dead by telling the truth, we simply will continue to pile more and more corpses upon these mountains of the dead. And you can't find a syllable of truth anywhere, even from the veterans, even from the poets. Fuck the intellectuals, they're never going to tell the truth about anything. But even those who've experienced it. Nobody talks about what it's like to murder, and nobody can talk about it. Because as soon as you do talk about it, the whole shitty cathedral of blood comes pouring down around you, sluicing down from the skies. The blood that is held aloft through fantasy collapses, and we see it for what it is, a lake of loss, of slaughter, of death, of murder, of bowels opening up, of shitting yourself, of screaming for your mother and running in slippery circles in the mud as you die like a pig. The soldiers are not fallen the soldiers are killers. War is murder. 
and war is only possible because of the gun in the room. At home, that pays for the war, that makes it profitable. Now, I wrote an article, I guess it's all coming on for two years ago now, about the gun in the room. You know, fuck the gun in the room. Can we even see the gun overseas? Can we even see the gun 3,000 miles away? Can we even see the gun 50 years ago? We are so far from being able to grapple this reality that is undermining our perceptions of ethics that even to say something as radical as the truth is revolutionary. To call a spade a spade and a bullet-wielding, bayonet-stabbing hitman a murderer is shocking beyond words. And so we live in our mythologies, we live in our fantasies. The virtue and bugles and flags and fallen for freedom. And because we do that, we simply get more of the same. Every generation is more of the same. And that's the price you pay for fantasy. The price you pay for fantasy in one form or another is simply, merely, and completely death. The price that you pay for fantasy is death in one form or another. And until we can give up that fantasy, all we're going to keep getting is more death. And that's the price that we're paying. That's the price that we're paying. So that's my little intro to Remembrance Day. We don't certainly have to talk about war all afternoon, but... That was uh, the stuff that was uh, kicking around in my mind. I hope that it's of some help and some use to you. So I uh, turn the floor. Uh, oh, uh, a little bit of uh, FDR business. Sorry to switch gears so quickly, but um, thanks again to uh, all of the book purchases and donators. And I just wanted to mention that the FDR media empire has now doubled in size insofar as um, the, uh, the uh, inimitable Gregory von Gauthier has uh, joined the Free Domain Radio team on, on a part-time basis. And uh, he will be responsible for uh, general cult operations, uh, for uh, helping to separate people from anyone who might be able to give them any help, for ensuring that guilt, manipulation, and isolation help increase donations. Uh, so as head cult minion, I just wanted to thank Greg for taking on this uh, opportunity slash um, mess, and he is going to be taking over some of the more day-to-day -day technical activities that are pressing and required and consuming all of my time and allowing me to uh, yell into a microphone a little bit more often, which would be great, at least for me, and also, of course, particular to start working on the book, uh, real-time relationships. So uh, that's something that uh, Christina has kindly agreed to give me a hand on because she feels that um, uh, it will help me have a real-time relationship with reality, which she considers to be a prerequisite, and I'm, I can't help but agree with her. So uh, that's, uh, that's good news, and uh, please uh, help keep donating because uh, Greg is very, very expensive. And um, uh, so thank you again for uh, donating. Uh, the books are all out, The God of Atheists, uh, On Truth, The Tyranny of Illusion, Universally Preferable Behavior, A Rational Proof of Secular Ethics, Audiobook, PDF, Fix, uh, a regular copy, if you want to order all three, get in touch with me, I'll give you, give you a good deal, my friend, give you a special price. And um, 
thanks again uh, for, for the donators who allow me to continue to do this. I hope that I'm doing uh, you proud. And if I'm not, just let me know whatever I can do to make it more satisfying for you. I will absolutely do it. You are the boss. So again, thank you so much for, uh, for uh, everyone's attention. Uh, so said we had a magnificent month last month, and things are looking pretty good this month too. I've been spending a little bit more money on advertising, and uh, so that's it for me for as far as the intro goes. If you would like to um, uh, pop in now with uh, a question or a comment, I would be more than happy to hear it. I have both a question and a comment. Why, sure. Uh, I was on the chat two Sundays ago about uh, late life defooing. And, uh, right. Uh, I was on the phone for eight hours yesterday talking to both my sister and one of my brothers. And um, they called me basically because of, it was my birthday about a week ago. So it was the obligatory uh, birthday get in touch thing. <laughs> so uh, anyway, um, I kind of ignored my brother's messages and then he called back and I, I felt like talking to him and wound up on the phone with him for four and a half hours explaining uh, my decision to not be in touch with my parents. Um, he asked me directly why I, was, why I chose to take a tropical vacation instead of doing what I normally do, and that's go visit family at Christmas. And uh, it was interesting because I really got a firsthand rich experience in talking to my brother uh, of just how intense and deep someone is uh, can be, or my brother was, uh, bought into the whole family mythology. And uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Just before you, do you, mean, do you mean the mythology of your particular family, or the mythology as family as a general concept? As a general concept, and also you know with with my family, but mostly uh, in general. And, and the, the, to the degree where he defended my father, who to him especially was just an immense tyrant, hit him and screamed and yelled at him, and oh my God, uh, it was just amazing. I mean, we, we actually, part of the four and a half hour talk was him describing in great detail how much of a just complete, absolute asshole my father was the whole time during you know, our childhoods, and uh, he just would not get it. But you know, I also don't, uh, blame him. He, 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 I give him credit for being very curious and asking me a lot of questions and, and um, instead of just, you know, kind of telling me off and, you know, saying, you know, you're just you're a jerk, whatever. I'm sorry to interrupt. But, uh, I just want to make sure I understood. You said you don't blame him. Don't blame him for what? For, for buying into the uh, uh, family mythology. Because I, I, I say that because I spent most of my life buying into it 100%. Well, sure. Wasn't when you got, uh, sorry to interrupt you again, but when you got better information, you responded. Uh, I mean, I know it took you some time, right? But right. but you did respond and, and mull the ideas over and so on. So sure. I just when you when I just and I'm really really sorry to be interrupting you, but no problem. The, the question of blame is is very important because there is such a thing as assigning responsibility to somebody without blaming them, right? So if you say to your brother, now that you have this information, you're responsible for disproving it or believing it, and if you believe in it, then you have to act on it. Um, and so uh, you can give responsibility to your brother uh, while recognizing that it may take him weeks or months to process the conversation, but that's right. not the same as blaming him. I just, I just wanted to give you another option. Right. I, I appreciate that. That's, that sounds, that sounds uh, more accurate. 
Um, and uh, so basically, I have already uh, deleted my parents' email addresses. They go straight to the to the trash. I don't, you know, I'm completely, you know, I had you know done with my parents. Um, Again, but I have not the most annoying interrupting guy in the world. But no know that you can uh, <clears throat> have the messages deleted from the server, so you don't even see the titles, right? Uh, I'll have to um, to look into that. I think Gmail should probably do that. But yeah, it sounds like a, a better idea. Um, so, and, and I've been mulling over since the last two weeks about the the letter, and I I appreciate the value of sending a letter that says in the effect of, you know, uh, for personal reasons, I, I'm going to take a break from the family and uh, I'll get back in touch with you when it's right for me. Um, uh, but um, I didn't feel from my gut that it was appropriate to send that to everyone in my family, you know, my siblings. Because um, uh, I don't have the same um, feelings of obligation with them as I do with my parents. You know, it's so much stronger with my parents than with, you know, I, I don't call my siblings anyway, you know. Uh, and I don't feel obligated to go visit them once a year or call them regularly like I did with my parents. And um, so, uh, but, so now the situation is that I've talked to my brother in length and told him, you know, he asked me directly, are you going to, you know, go to visit them next year? I said, no. Are you going to ever talk to them again? I said, no. Are you, you going to go to their funerals? I said, no. You know, I, <laughs> I said, I'm totally done. And uh, so the cat's out of the bag with, with him. Also, I talked with my sister yesterday, too, for a great length. So it's, it's out, it, the cat's out of the bag with them. So um, I, don't you know, I don't feel I need to send them a defu letter. But my, my question is, my, uh, is how to tell my parents... Uh, that I want to take a break from the family and not include my siblings, you know. Because um, I, I kind of talked with this briefly with my brother, you know. I said, well, I'm going to tell my, you know, my parents that, you know, I'm going to tell them that I'm not going to be in touch with them. And I kind of told him I wasn't clear on exactly how. I was going to say maybe I'll take a break or, you know, something like that and get back in touch with them, or I'll just tell them, but that's not quite really the truth, and, or I could be more blunt, hit them over the head by just saying, you know, I'm just not going to communicate with you directly. So, I don't know. I was wondering if there were any ideas or advice for, for my situation in terms of notifying uh, my parents that, you know, I'm going to not be in touch with them. Well, I would, um, if I were you, I would notify my siblings. And the reason that I would do that is so that my parents couldn't use my siblings to get messages through to me or to communicate with me. Or I mean, they could still try, but at least your siblings wouldn't be confused. It also might be useful to get the information to your siblings so that your parents don't dictate the mythology that results from your decision, right? So you can sort of give them some basic reasons. I want to get my head straight. You know, we've had an abusive history. I need to sort all of that sort of stuff out. Uh, and so I'm going to take a, you know, an indefinite period of time away to, to sort all of that out. Mention there's this guy on the internet who wants your money, who wants to break you to not stop seeing everyone who's, who's in your family. And that should help calm them uh, down. Just but um, I, would, I would definitely uh, inform your siblings. Um, of course, there is a number of possibilities when it comes to sibling relationships in a defu. 
Of course, the most likely one, and I'm sorry to say this, but just statistically this does seem to be the case, the most likely one is that they will work their uh, darndest to try and get you into a refu situation. And they will do that not because of any intrinsic value that your parents have, but because your decision or your choice to act in a consistent and virtuous and self-interested manner is uh, causing them will cause them anxiety. Right? You're opening up a possibility that for them is not even really a possibility at the moment. So if you continue on that path, then you end up, as you will, you know, happier and more secure and more confident and, and so on, then they will feel anxiety because you're putting a decision in their faces that they would rather, in a sense, not have put in their faces. So with siblings, you're either going to get people who are going to try and get you back into the fold, uh, in which case it doesn't go well. I mean, there's there's no... There's no positive way out of that. People don't tend to recant, uh, but uh, that, that's sort of one situation. The other is that you get the blank one, right? The blank um, siblings. And those are the siblings who are like, you know, well, you know, whatever you need to do, uh, I guess I support you. Uh, and then you sort of, but they won't make any decision about whether you're doing the right or the wrong thing or have any understanding of ethics or integrity behind your reason, uh, behind the reasons for your decision. So they'll just be like, well, you know, if, if that's what you have to do, I guess that's what you have to do. And and, uh, you know, I'm sorry that it's come to this for you. And, and you'll get all this mealy-mouth, fence-sitting blankness. And that is, um, that is usually a, harbing, a harbinger of things to come which are pretty deleterious, such as uh, as you continue to not be part of the uh, family, their anxiety will increase and they will be more susceptible to parental pressure. Uh, and that parental pressure shifts because initially it's to refoo. But after that, it just becomes a kind of petulant and destructive rage. And those people will then start to find ways to put you down and to make you pay for the crime of leaving the family in the mafia sense. So there is also the third possibility is uh, somebody who is, uh, as you say, curious. You can have long conversations and so on uh, and, and want to know the reasons behind your decision and have some respect for the ethics and the integrity that is driving your decision. And that person will either turn into a blank sibling or they will turn into somebody who can also get on the raft, right, and get to freedom. So you just have to follow your own instincts, but I would absolutely uh, suggest uh, that you let your siblings know because otherwise what you're doing is you're leaving a wide open space for your parents to cause you more trouble through your siblings. Right, so how would I kind of word a letter to my, my parents that's just to them, where I can't just you know say, well, I'm taking a break from the family, if I'm not going to include my my siblings. I I would contact them more, more individually. I think. Well, I would just say, I mean, it's it's, it's the uh, it's the standard thing, right? But that I suggest, of course, it's up to you naturally. But my suggestion is, you know, I've decided to take a break from seeing you guys because I have some issues to work on, and if and when I've uh, sorted them out and and want to reconnect, I will absolutely be in touch. Yeah, I, I guess that sounds that sounds good. Um, yeah, but it was it was interesting uh, talking with my brother. You know, he was curious in one sense, but every time I said something that explained my position, he he came back with something to kind of refute it, and, and it became real clear after you know that it, that he uh, was anxious about this, and he was it was about him and his anxiety, you know, and although he tried to make it sound like he was concerned about me but it really wasn't he was it, this this what i was when i'm doing 
and, and, and telling him that, you know, I, I'm not going to be, you know, that my parents don't care about me, uh, and, and explaining, giving him concrete evidence that they actually don't, and hearing back the, the absolute weakest <laughs> attempts at uh, trying to tell, uh, convince me that they actually do care about me. Right. It was now just an interesting they, conversation. They from a different time, they, they did the best they could. Uh, you know, I, you know, Dad was never taught to express himself, and Mom doesn't know how to do that. And just, Oh, absolutely, you're going to get a whole mass of fogging, which has got nothing to do with you and is entirely designed to keep that question obscured for your brother. Yeah, it was, it was just my first real uh, face-to-face with someone, you know, like uh, a direct confrontation or, not, or, or discussion about, about this. And it was, you know, I've heard, listened to a lot of your podcasts and heard all, all the same things that my brother was, was saying uh, that you predicted. And, you know, I, I trusted that what you said is what you experienced. And, and, but, you know, it's different hearing you talk about your experience and from you know, but it, but when I actually experienced it myself for the first time with someone real time, it was like wow, you know, <laughs> it put some real, uh, uh, um, it made it that much more real, more personal, you know. Well, I agree with you, and I uh, I just wanted to mention something for for both you and for the people who uh, are going through this kind of stuff, which is that the amazing thing when you start to think for yourself is it, what happens is that you realize how unbelievably robotic other people are. When you start to think for yourself and you start to evaluate both your personal reality and objective reality and your relationships, when you start to evaluate them according to rational principles, you're thinking for yourself, you realize that humanity is pretty much composed of mythology robots, and that the world is actually incredibly empty, and that most of the people, if not the vast majority of the people that you will ever interact with, are pretty much identical to those little goddamn Barbies where you pull the string on the back and they say, I don't like math. (laughs) (laughs) But but when you you get the the defenses that human beings have against reality are mind-numbingly repetitive. They are mind-numbingly numbingly repetitive and there's only like six of them anyway and so the amazing thing is and this is why people don't like to detach from the herd and think for themselves is then you look back or you interact with these people and everything that comes out of their mouth is mind numbingly predictable and you realize with a at least for me and i think it will be the case for you maybe it won't be but you realize with a terrible painful ache the amount of years you wasted being unbelievably bored and how little you want to do that in the future. And that's just something to, to, there is a kind of nihilism that goes along with this where you realize just how soulless and robotic the people around you are insofar as because all they do is manage their own anxieties, they have no soul in a sense, right? All they're doing is defending against reality and that is unbelievably repetitive and unbelievably repeated over and over again and the defenses and the the distractions and the fogging and the, the minimizing and the, all of the defenses that people have to avoid simply judging reality. Uh, all of that is just amazing. And you just got to keep your eyes peeled for that because you will get a kind of world weariness when you think for yourself and you start to interact with other people who haven't crossed over and who actively are fighting against crossing over to some sort of rational enlightenment. There's just there's this weariness 
and this the sameness. And this is perfectly predicted by a reasonable philosophy, but it's just something to, to keep your eye on. Yeah, I certainly experienced that with my brother. It was it you know was, what's coming. You, it's it's like you you got your hand up their ass and you're making their mouth move. Like it's it's like you know what's coming next, and it's unbelievable just how repetitive it all is. Yeah, we went you know round and around for four and a half hours. You know, uh, not not the entire time, but for quite a bit of the time, you know, round and round and round. Um, so, but thanks, that, that was helpful. Okay, well, thanks so much. Really do appreciate the update, and, uh, and keep us posted, of course. Thanks. All right, who's up next on the good ship FDR? Well, since nobody's talking, uh, quick announcement. Greg G is going to be on the radio with me on Tuesday at 11 a.m., so you guys can catch the stream at the link I posted on the forums. Oh, fantastic. Thanks so much. Uh, do you want to just read out the... URL in case people don't know whether these things are on the forum. On the forum, sorry. Yeah, sure. Uh, wrgp.fiu.edu. In the top right corner, there's a link to the stream, uh, all the bit rates you'd like, and uh, yeah, you can listen there. And uh, hopefully, we'll get a recording of that. And I don't know. We, we don't really know what we're going to talk about. I'm going to be kind of alone on the show, so uh, Greg's just going to call in, and we're going to have a little chat about current events or cats and dogs or whatever. No, I think that um, uh, I think that Greg, now that he's moved into the inner circle completely, and as a as a paid employee, uh, the next thing that I'm pretty much anticipating is a backstabbing breakaway, uh, sort of a, a splinter faction. Uh, I think I've already seen memos uh, floating around for GDR, uh, Greg Domain Radio. So uh, that uh, this this step that Greg is taking with you uh, on the show uh, seems to me entirely consistent with my mad paranoia about uh, uh, pretty much everything. So uh, that's good. Let me just check this off. Uh, yeah, he is the new Nathaniel Brandon. Uh, sadly, though, the affair has not occurred yet. But, uh, you know, a boy can always help. Next! <laughs> Who wants to follow that rant? I was wondering if the set, uh, the date for the um, symposium in Miami is already, like, set, or if you're thinking about maybe moving it? No, I'm not uh, thinking of moving it. Why is that? That's not a date that you can make. Miami Symposium, January 18th to 19th, 2008. Uh, in, uh, where was it again? Miami, that's right. And uh, uh, so, yes, so we, uh, we've already sort of uh, pre-booked some of the hotel aspects. I mean, if, if everybody says I can't make it that week, then naturally uh, we will have to, uh, to move it. But uh, so far, we've had enough sign-ups that uh, it, would be, uh, it would be tough to move. Oh, that's fine. I could probably make it. It's just kind of when school started already. So, I so mean, you're it would it's prob- probably inconvenient to you. So we should change it all. Well, naturally. <laughs> <Just kidding. yeah. laughs> no, I mean, if there's people that are going to school, I don't know how many there are, but it might be better for them. I don't know if you've polled or anything. No, I mean, this is the date we've sort of set on. And um, the reason is, of course, Christina and I have already booked her flights. Uh, so, well, Christina's booked her flight. I have to uh, hitchhike. I don't know what's going on with that. But uh, I don't, apparently I don't have the air miles or the marital cachet to rate a, uh, a seat. Uh, anyway, well, no, because we could have flown together or Christina could have got first class, so clearly it was a decision that she was uh, keen to make uh, in, in her favor. Anyway, uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is we have these um, uh, the Free Domain Radio Salons, which is a Saturday night dick get-togethers at my place. We will also uh, allow for people to call in if they want and uh, to sort of listen and chat if you have to do so remotely, but uh, people are welcome to drop by. There's information on the website. 
which you can get more information about. It's going to be a post-dinner thing because we are cheap and we're not going to feed you. Um, but, um, yeah, cocktails and, and so on. And hopefully Christina will keep her head out of the punch bowl this time. So that's uh, going to be uh, just a, we're going to sit around and shoot the shit about philosophy, basically, or, or whatever is on your mind. So it's just more of a social get-together, which we're going to run every couple of weeks. Uh, so that's going to be available. Post more about that on the boards. Uh, so it's a drop-in or a uh, call-in and chat. People are having a problem with the word salon. Colonists find it, what, a little too gay? They think it's a hair joke. Yeah, because Lord knows we have no shortage of those uh, and on Free Domain Radio. No, the salon, uh, we, I could have called it a round table, but the salon is, it's, uh, you know, it's a French thing from the 19th century that they would get together, literary societies or philosophers would get together for a salon. Uh, and uh, this, of course, uh, in the Wild West, they do it called a saloon, but there was much more shooting than there probably will be at ours. So uh, that's, uh, that's where the name comes from. Okay, well, um, I had, as uh, Greg, um, had um, an interesting um, question come up actually just today while I was listening to another podcast. Um, what, what do you mean another podcast? Like, an, what, what do you mean? <laughs> another, another, there's another podcast? What are you talking about? I knew it! I knew it, Brutus! Ah! Sorry, come on. <laughs> no, I'm pillaging, dude. But... Anyway, um, they they were talking about um, this movie in which um, one friend asked another to lie for her to her husband so that she wouldn't get in trouble um, with her husband for um, going out to a club or something like that. And they tried to turn it into a philosophical debate over... Uh, 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 friendship versus honesty, right? And it occurred to me that um, that uh, juxtaposing those two things in that way is is uh, it sounds to me very much like a false dichotomy because you can't really have a friendship with someone in which you're not honest, right? Well, I mean, I certainly agree with that. And there is the old dramatic thing of like, I know that my friend's husband is sleeping around on her. Should I tell her? Should I not? Uh, blah, 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 blah. And uh, I mean, that's, I mean, this is a pretty common ethical dilemma that, that people imagine or make up for themselves. Which obviously is, you know, relative to ethical dilemmas in the world, like the aforementioned rant on war, relatively inconsequential and only rich white people would really care about that as a real moral dilemma. But of course, uh, the question is, what are you doing with friends? Uh, what are you doing with friends whose husbands sleep around on them, right? That obviously is a bad marriage. Her husband is lying to her. It says, I would be more concerned about myself than I would be about my friend. Like, what kind of company am I running with here where this <laughs> comes up as an issue? Right, and and that's sort of the kind of where I was going with this was the fact that um, the fact that it's it's made into a dilemma um, is because essentially they're they're trying to turn um, a vice into a virtue, right? So um, the idea of um, helping your 
friend hide things from her husband um, is is presented as a a good thing to do, right? And on the other side, being honest with your friend is supposed is supposed to be a good thing to do. So, so just the fact that um, that it's it's posed in that way. Um, it, it's and and it kind of ties into what you were saying earlier about um, uh, Remembrance Day and 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 that sort of thing. You you need the sentimentality in that case. You need the sentimentality in order to turn um, the idea of turning our children into murderers into a virtue, right? Right, right. In order to avoid looking at the horror of the society that does what it does, we have to make up all these stories, which simply means that we have to reproduce it. If you avoid, and we all know this from personal experience, those who've taken a little tootle down to their own personal room 101, whatever that may be, uh, we know that if you refuse to accept some, something horrible about yourself, then you simply will continue to repeat it because you'll just make up a story about it instead, which means that you turn it, you can't turn a vice into something neutral. It has to be turned into a virtue because you need something that's uh, the opposite end of the teeter-totter or the seesaw. So you, you can't turn a vice into a neutral. You have to turn it into a virtue, right? So uh, what you have in this situation that you're talking about is, is people say, well, here I have two competing virtues. I have a friendship and I have the truth. And they are both valuable and they are contradicting each other. And of course, what they're trying to do is paralyze themselves by overcomplicating some things that are pretty basic which is uh, the solution is not, does not usually involve telling the truth to your friend, but not having that friend around. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> right. I was reminded of, a, um, of somebody that Christine and I knew uh, some years ago. She, was, uh, she had a volatile relationship with uh, a fellow, and she called Christina one day, and she was pretty hysterical. I mean, even by my standards, she was pretty hysterical. And she said to Christina, she said, I need you to tell my boyfriend that you saw him at the mall with another woman, right? And uh, Christina was like, how am I? What are you talking about? And as it turns out, this woman had um, uh, received a phone call on a cell phone that was her boyfriend's that he'd left behind, and it was a woman who hung up. And so she became immediately frantic that her boyfriend was having an affair, right? Because some woman called, and it was a you know, wrong number, and then hung up. So she immediately went to, of course, a fantasy affair, right? And so uh, she said that, uh, I know you're seeing, I know you're involved with some other woman cause, because you were at the mall with another woman, and Stefan and Christina saw you and told me, right? When, of course, we've done nothing, <laughs> nothing of the kind, right? Right. And, uh, you know, what is the solution? Am I torn between... The truth and friendship? Hell no, I'm torn between hitting the eject button in one second or two. <laughs> right, right. Acting on, acting on what you know to be... Yeah, there's the no right contradiction there. So you're asking us to lie to cover your ass because you falsely accused your boyfriend of something he didn't do based on a paranoid reaction? Uh, I mean, when, when you have that, you know that phrase that scrolls across your brain from time to time with people? This is a good exit phrase for me in a relationship. When I see the phrase, where 
do I even begin? That's usually a good time to like not, uh, not be uh, a friend with that person, right? So. Right. So I so I was thinking about that and how if if you are living consistently with right values, with right, you know, in accordance with the truth, there can be no, there can be no um, conflict of virtues. All the virtues point toward the truth, right? And so, so where there is a conflict, where you perceive a, 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 a conflict, the, then you know that there's, there's something not quite, in your own thinking, there's something that's not quite right. Well, right? The sorry. only way a dichotomy can occur between virtues is if there's, there's a, a misunderstanding of one virtue or the other. Right. And, you know, what we generally have to work with is a form of possession that we are inhabited by somebody else's preferences. Right. So there are all these people, uh, you know, their, their, their parents treated them badly and they say, well, I don't want to talk about it with my mom because it's, you know, I don't want to cause her pain and it's bad to cause people pain. But it's like nobody comes up with that on their own. That's just your mom's preference. She doesn't want you to talk to her about it. So she's communicated in various different ways over the years that causing people pain is a bad thing. It's rude. And if you talk to this about me, uh, with me, I'm going to display pain and that automatic programming is going to kick in and keep you away from the subject. So when we have contradictions in our values, it's almost always because we're allowing somebody else's corrupt or, or irrational or selfish preference to take a precedence over what we know to be the right thing. So if you've got a friend whose husband is having an affair, well, you know, the only reason you're going to feel hesitation is because she doesn't want to know, right? And that's her hesitation, right? So that's what I mean, mistaking the world or mistaking other people for ourselves. We, we just, we're programmed to respond so automatically to the needs of corrupt people and exploitive people when we're kids that we don't, uh, we don't process things as our own. We don't know if it's us or somebody else that, whose interests we're going to be harming. It all gets very mucky and confused, and that's part of how, of course, we're supposed to get paralyzed. Right. So, uh, so, so, in a, in a, in, hmm, I'm trying, I'm trying to, uh, fit that into what, uh, no, don't worry about I'm my just... tangents, just go, go with your, <laughs> don't even try, I can't even do it half the time, so <laughs> Well, it's not, uh, it's not that, it's not necessarily that, um, where, um, it's that we turn obedience into a virtue, right? In that case, where where whatever whatever makes somebody else feel bad, we can't do. Right? Well, we, we turn we turn pain avoidance of others into a virtue, right? That's the key. We turn avoidance into a virtue, because of course, if you have something bad that happened in your childhood, it sure as hell hurts you to not be able to talk about it with your mom, right? But your pain and the avoidance of your pain, which would involve that conversation, suddenly doesn't matter, right? The only important thing is that your mom will be hurt, and that's bad, right? So we just, we, we turn the pain, we, we turn avoiding pain, avoiding causing pain in others into a virtue, but it's never, a UPB blows that right out of the water, right? Because then it should be mutual, and she should want to have the conversation, because it will alleviate your pain. Right, because if causing people pain is, is a vice, then... then um... 
then she should want to um, not reject uh, you. Rem- have that conversation with you. And of course, originally right. uh, she should be wrong for having caused you pain as a kid. Right. right. She should want to remediate the the error or the uh, um, the harm she caused. Right. Right. And so, and so the the uh, conversation in that case would not be one of um, uh, motivated in 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 uh, revenge or, or uh, retaliation, but in, in remediation, in, restitution. in correcting a wrong. Restitution, right. You know, right. that's right. And, of course, the fundamental aspect of corrupt ethics is this is a universal principle that does not apply to you. <laughs> right, right, right. Everything turns into a conflict. Everything turns into a, a kind of, of um, um, forced dichotomy. Right, and you get you get a, a whole bunch of sentimental and saccharine phrases which cloak the gun in the room, right? The virtue of the soldier, helping the poor, keeping drugs off the street, educating the children, helping the sick. Uh, you just get an enormous amount of syrupy and glucosey, fructose, glucose kind of words that are all designed to obscure the central fact that a gun is being pointed at someone's head and will be pulled if they don't obey. Right, right. And so I was just thinking that uh, thinking about it, that I couldn't think of a single virtue that, when held up against any other virtue, resulted in any kind of dichotomy, right? But the dichotomy is pleasure, right? The dichotomy that, that people talk about is pleasure, right? I, I like this couple because I can go and shoot the shit with them and have fun, and they're, they're funny and whatever, right? And now, unfortunately, I'm in the possession of the knowledge that her husband is having an affair. So I don't want to give up this friendship but I do want to tell the truth. So people take the hedonistic, I don't want to give up the friendship and turn that into a virtue. Friendship is a virtue, right? And so they, right. Turn, their, they, they, they turn their own pain avoidance into a virtue. And then they say, look, there's this conflict between virtues. But of course, it's not true at all. And it's funny, too, that you say that because that's exactly what they did on this show is they called friendship a virtue. Sure. 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 <laughs> explicitly called it a virtue that raised an eyebrow immediately because you know virtues are are something that are uh, in individually expressed right you can't obligate somebody else to be your friend because friendship is a virtue yeah calling a friendship a virtue is like calling gravity an object <laughs> right right exactly right and so they were setting up uh, a, 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 I mean, this this conflict where none really existed, right? For the sake of, uh, uh, you know, it's almost as if they were looking to, I don't know, just kind of wallow in the confusion, I guess. Well, they want to say that um, this is this is how ethics gets crucified. They want to say, look, even in this simple situation. Ethics can't work, right? So if ethics can't work right. in a simple situation, how the hell are you supposed to apply it to foreign policy or foreign aid or, you know, I mean, all they're saying is that ethics doesn't work. Uh, and they like right. it at a very personal level so that people say, oh, well, I guess there's this thing called ethics, which is really complicated and confusing. So I don't get it. I'm just going to leave it to the experts. I'm sure George Bush gets it. Let's just have him do it all. <laughs> right. And so it becomes... Uh, not just a, a question of, you know, what do you do with a friend who asks you to lie for him to, 
what do you do when a, the president asks you to murder for him, right? You say, yeah, I mean, I guess it's complicated shit. And of course, this is exactly what happens in the realm of religion as well, right? That nobody can figure out what the hell the Bible's all about because it's just a psychotically deranged and contradictory book. And so we say, well, I don't know, kill the guy eye for an eye, turn the other cheek, who knows? And I just turn it over to the goddamn experts, the guy with the funny hats and the big rings because I don't have a clue what's going on, right? It's all just supposed to baffle you to the point where you throw your hands up and say, I'm, I'm leaving this arena because I don't know what the hell's going on. And then all the bad people in the world move in and inhabit the realm of ethics. Yep. Yeah, so that was just, uh, that was one thing. Then there was a... Um, just uh, just a second on to the next one in case anyone had a, uh, a yearning burning who, who maybe has just joined us. Was there anyone else who wanted... Sure, certainly. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but just in case there was uh, somebody else who joined who wanted to, had anything uh, spilling over their cup of conversation doth run it over anybody okay go ahead <laughs> hmm so so the second thing um i had on my uh list of um interesting topics was uh um a little uh Heated conversation I had with my therapist last week. If you're interested in uh, um, talking about the idea of misdirected anger. I'm more interested in experiencing misdirected anger, so go ahead. You. <laughs> well, I got... She, she tasked me with a... Uh, oh, I remember. I'm so sorry to interrupt. I think I remember. This is the one where she said, write down everything that good about your uh, your parents? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. About your parents' relationship. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And and the best I could come up with was a list of uh, secondary gains, as you described it, um, which is about, just about as accurate as it can get between the two of them. But what what really upset me was... The fact that um, I felt like I was being made to um, make excuses for them, right? For 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 their relationship. And I'm so sorry. So I got. But but what were the words that your therapist used when she asked for this assignment, or when she she gave you this assignment? Like, did she exact say make up excuses for your parents? Like, what did she actually say? What did she actually say? And and yeah, exactly. She I uh, she didn't say make up excuses. Obviously, um, she said um, list all the good things about their relationship, um, even if it's something small. And an example she gave was like, you know, he put the toothpaste on her toothbrush for her. Right. That was her example. Right. Right, and so. But why did that? Why so, did that make you so angry, though? That because that, I mean, if somebody said to me, "Write everything that's positive about your mom," I mean, I'd come up with one or two things. You know, she never strangled a pigeon. Um, <laughs> you know, she <laughs> she could beat a carpet with great ferocity due to her advanced child beating muscles. I mean, I don't know. We could come up with one or two good things. Um, she, I mean, she was kind to me when I was sick. Right? She was, you know, when I was. When I was helpless, uh, when I didn't have an ego, uh, I, she was she was kind, right? There were there were some positives 
around that, right? They say, what is positive about my mom and dad's relationship? Well, me, of course. Right? I mean, there's, there's things that, that you could <laughs> right. say that are positive, but, but you came up with something quite different from what she said, right? Well, I, I came up with... Um, well, let's see. I came up with... Um, um, there were three or four things that I came up with. Um, like, you know, my mom always had dinner on the table and always had his breakfast ready in the morning for him. And my dad never forgot her birthday, right? So, but these are things that when I was thinking about this too, after that session, which was the second one, these were all things that they would tell me um, when I would ask the same questions, right? Like, why do you love him? Or why do you love her? Or how do you know you love each other, right? And, and the answer would always be, well, you know, I do these things and that's why. Or the right? famous, she's just always been there for me. You know, like a potted plant or, or oxygen. Right, right. And so it occurred to me that this week it occurred to me that what I was upset about was not so much what made me angry was the fact that that the list of things I could come up with was exactly the same list of things that they would come up with. So in right. that it was very useful, right? I think so because Sorry, it, it uh, gave you a map of the peninsula of intrusion of your as we talked about earlier it's other people's opinions that mess us up right that we don't know are their opinions so right. this gave you a map of of an area where your parents opinions had intruded into the real world right sure sure because I mean, because I beyond the that list of things, I couldn't really think of any reason why I should believe that the two of them loved each other, and yet that that they would argue vociferously that they did, right? So, but why did you get so mad at the therapist? Well, I think because. Um, I think because I was being asked to defend what I knew was um, screwed up in the first place. I don't believe that that was the case. Right, because what you Explain. said, that's why I asked you what she said, right? What she said was, write down good things about your parents' relationships, even if they're small, right? Right. She didn't say, defend corruption. Right, because that's what right. people say, and then there's an interpretation, Right of what they say, right? Because the translation. Right, and I, I, I recognize that as an interpretation, but I can't, uh, I guess I can't think of it in any other way. Well, but you can think of it as it is. She has asked you to list positive things about your parents' relationship. And if you come back with none, then you come back with none. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you just, it, 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 or you can say, I don't want to do this exercise. Give another one, right? <laughs> right. I mean, right. there are things that 
I mean, ang- I think anger is, is just, right? Like if somebody calls me a cult leader or whatever, then I'm going to get angry, right? And, um, uh, but, but if somebody says, I want you to do this thing, then you, you can make that decision and right? you can do that thing. And I think that actually was quite helpful to do it for you. Um, and, uh, but, but getting, getting angry and saying, well, she's now wanting me to do this, that, and the other, and she's got this hidden agenda of X, Y, and Z, and so on. You want to try not to do that, you know, <laughs> to put it bluntly. I mean, you, I mean, we all have this, this habit, right? Cause it really bothered you emotionally. And then you made up these reasons as to why being bothered emotionally was valid. Hmm. Right. Cause there's, well, I mean, it wasn't there's, like I was, sorry, that's what happened which provokes no emotion, right? Unless somebody's just directly insulting you or something, she said, list positive things, which would provoke no emotion, right? You may feel like, I don't think that's a useful exercise or whatever, right? But then if if you feel really angry about that, then what's happening is you have been asked to defend the undefendable in the past, right? Well, that's how I interpret it, for sure. In the past, Right, so you have been asked to defend the undefendable, your family, God, the military, whatever, right? In the past, that has been a constant requirement of yours, but that, that's oh, yeah. been imposed upon you, right? That's, for, that's true, right? Mm-hmm. And even your own lifestyle has been subject to attack, right? Well, it's actually more defendable, but I'm just talking about like really corrupt <laughs> things in your life, really corrupt people in your life, right? You have been asked to to defend them and to act as if they're not corrupt, to counteract against any rational values, to defend or protect or break bread with people who are corrupt, right? That is, that is true, yes. Right? So the reason you have an emotional trigger there is because of the past, not because of the present, not because of what your therapist said, right? Okay. So when you have a strong right. emotional oh. reaction to something which is not insulting, she didn't say well, you're just a bad kid, and I think your parents are great, and you should go and love them up, right? Because that would be an attack upon whatever. She just said, do this, right? Which turned out to be a useful thing. When you have a very strong emotional reaction, and this is for all of us, and this is something I have to remind myself of as well. When we have a very strong emotional reaction to something, it's because it's similar to everything, to, to bad things that have happened to us in the past. And what we need to do is get real and get honest about what happened in the past. What we don't want to do is to make up justifications for getting angry in the present, rather than recognize where it's actually coming from. So, so how was this a justification, though? Well, you said that she's trying to get me to defend my parents. Oh, I see. Like, that's a story about her motivations, and, and you were concerned about her corruption and this and that and the other, right? And her, you know, why would she want me to do this, and what's her agenda, and so on, right? The this, this story is the roadmap backwards. Well... It's just not what she did, right? What she did, but she said, write right. down these, these positive things about your parents. And if you come back with none, that's very useful, right? And if you come back with two that turn out to be bad, that also is very useful. And the list of things I did come back with actually was very useful. was very useful, right? So you had yeah. a strong emotional reaction, and the thing we need to do is to say, it can't be this person who just asked me to do this little exercise. Clearly did not insult me, did not tell me I was wrong, did not invalidate my past, did not attack me, did not put me down, did not insult me, did not ask me to act in an unethical manner, did not betray me, did not steal from me, did not beat me up, did not rape me, did not send me to war. Just ask, can you do this? 
Right. Right. So when we have a very strong emotional reaction, we need to unpin it from the immediate trigger, which is an injustice, right? To, to get mad at somebody who just asks you to do something. And we need to get, we, you know, the whole point of psychology, get mad at the right people. Right, right. And that's, that's sort of what I was thinking about this week, about that whole thing, was that the, the anger really belonged directed at them, not me, or not her. Right, and, and that's the real-time relationship challenge that, that we all still have to master, right? Which is on the board, you say, I'm really angry, at, 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 and this was the trigger. <laughs> right, not I'm really yeah. angry. This was the trigger, and here's the hidden agenda that justifies my anger, on the part of the person who initiated the action. <laughs> don't you all agree with me? Well, I, I didn't exactly present it that way either. I mean, I, I recognized it as an interpretation of what she was asking me to do, but like I still couldn't really see past the interpretation. Right, right. And that, of course, is to avoid the pain, the, hel the helplessness in the past. When we make up mythology in the present to justify our, our feelings, we avoid the vulnerability of the past. And we have control over the mythology. We can make that, we can create that, we can control it, we can change it. But the real feelings that came up for you were in the past when you were helpless, and it's the helplessness. And mythology is, 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 is an illegitimate way to avoid helplessness, to avoid uh, feelings of vulnerability. Right? We, we have control over our stories. Right? Christians do this all the time. Something bad happens, they just make up a reason why. You know, well, there was a lesbian comic in, in, in New Orleans, and that's why everybody had to drown. I just make shit up all the time, unless I'm not putting you in that category. But then if a good thing happens, they can just say, well, it's because I went to church last week. Like, you just make up anything that they want to avoid the helplessness that we all need to process as, you know, victims of, to some degree, arbitrary reality. And uh, it's to we have power over stories, and they give us an immediate way to avoid the, the vulnerability and helplessness of the past, but... Of course, it's an illusory control, right? Because we just end up right. producing. Right, and recognizing it as a story wasn't enough, though. Uh, trying to trying to map that story to a, an injustice in the past is um, is where I keep getting stuck. Well, but it's easy to do, and I, I'm not saying it's always easy to do when you're looking in the mirror or sitting alone. But, you know, when I asked you uh, or, or mentioned, well, you've, you've been asked to defend the indefensible in the past, it took you about five seconds, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Right? So it's yeah. not like you know, still it down, the Mandarin, but... which will take years, right? This is just, well, this is obviously too strong a reaction to somebody who didn't offend me or, or attack me or put me down or whatever, right? And therefore, Distilling it down to a principle right? then, right? And, and the story, the story that we make up, to get mad in the present is the reality of what happened in the past, right? Okay, so the 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 all right. So the distilling down what she's asking into a principle. Well, wait a minute. No, because that isn't at all what she was asking me to do. That was that was that principle was what was what I was applying as as the interpretation right she right defend the, the indefensible task of writing down a list right. right a shopping list positive aspects of your family my favorite movies it's just a mechanical task of writing down a list that's all she asked you to do right right everything else right. was your interpretation and that interpretation was real but only in the past that's why the interpretation fit right because your parents absolutely did 
what your story about your therapist was all about. Your, your, your parents absolutely did have all these creepy little hidden agendas and were manipulative and were asking you to defend the indefendable at all times, right? To be loyal to corrupt people, to defend the family that was evil, to, to love your abusers, to worship God, to worship your country, to worship the military. You were continually, with all of these manipulative tricks that may not have been totally evident at the surface, continually being ordered to defend the indefensible, to love the corrupt, to attach to the evil. So it was true that in the past this all occurred, but that's not what your therapist was doing, right? Or if, I think or, I or if it was, there was no evidence of it as yet. Right, right. It's, 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 it, I recognize that it wasn't right that it should be directed at her. Um, well, then you just say, well, what's happened... That but but I similar. But but I think I see what the problem is though now because, um, without without any direct evidence, well, not direct evidence isn't the right word, but without any memory of the past, or without sufficient memory of the past, it's difficult to take the explanation as fact. Um, it just sounds to uh, I'm afraid I'm just making up a different story, right? So that now instead of the therapist with a hidden agenda, I'm just taking that whole story and pinning it to my parents in the past because they can't defend themselves, right? So you're saying that you might be unjustly angry at the people who beat you with a belt <laughs> rather than the woman who asked you to write a list? That's a good point. I mean, please, look, I mean, there, there's no amount of anger that you can have towards your parents that is not justified. They were brutal, vicious, manipulative people who, you know, who used you like, uh, yeah, you, it would be illegal to use a dray horse physically the way they used you emotionally and, and, and physically. Your father with his endless busy work, little bullshit tasks, and your mother with her complaining and hypochondria and... You know, the, the, the uh, you know, we don't do it the right way, we don't do it the wrong way, we do it the Gothia way. You know, like that bizarre, otherworldly narcissism. And I mean, it, it's a, it was a really creepy, horrifying, destructive environment with physical violence, emotional violence, uh, verbal abuse, and, uh, you know, pinning it to your parents, uh, being angry. I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, that's where I'd go first, right? I mean, that's... You know, whenever Christine and yeah. I have problems, if it's coming from her side, uh, we first place we go is uh, mom and dad, right? I mean, <laughs> it's not because, you know, oh, that, that's just easy. It's actually very hard. But, you know, the first place that you go, like if, if you were being tortured for 20 years and had all your toes broken, then when you stub your toe, the first place you'd go if you got really angry is to the place where you were tortured for 20 years. Now, if it turns out not to be that, the 0.1% of times it might be something else, great, but at least you go to the most obvious place first. Yeah, that's that's a good point. That's a very good point. There, there, there is there is enough of a memory there that I don't really need to go scrounging for every incident. That um, that just makes it obvious. No, you're like a guy neck deep in peanuts, reaching around trying to find a peanut. There's got to be some yeah. peanuts in here somewhere. I just got to keep looking. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Well, I, I guess it's just a question of, um, you know, making sure that 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 it's 
not just a, a reflex and that it's actually um, a thought-out process. And, no, 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 know, no. The reflex is good. Just, God, God knows I'm never going to give you a thought-out process. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God, no. Am I never, ever, ever going to give you a thought-out process? Because you can turn uh, Sparrow's Flight into a thought-out process. So, uh, no, no. The, the, your instinct is right. Your instinct was completely and totally right. Right? The defensive story you made up was wrong. Your instinct was completely and totally right that uh, I have many, many times been asked to be loyal to corruption. And now this person is asking me to list good things about corrupt people. Right? So your instinct was bang on. And all you had to say was, I can't believe how angry and upset this made me feel. That's exactly what I did at the beginning of the third session. Too. Right, and that's, that's, that's right. What I, it's just then the pull is to say that the stimulus causes the response. Right? You know there are people whose bones ache when it's going to rain because they have arthritis or something? Well, it's the arthritis that causes the ache, not the rain, because lots of people get the rain without the ache, right? Right, right. Right, right. And, and it was, I mean, it was... It, once I, you know, it's funny, it's once I did that, once I just admitted I was mad at her, it was easy for me to see that the anger needed to be directed elsewhere. But it was hard for me to see why. The anger needed to be redirected elsewhere. Right. It didn't belong. Let me put, let me rephrase it. It didn't belong directed at her, right? It belonged directed at my parents for what But the anger was caused they by did your parents' behavior. It was not caused by a therapist list. Say again? The anger was caused by the historical behavior of your parents, right, when you were a kid. Right, 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 right. Not uh, and your and your siblings, with one exception in the present. Right, exactly. Right. And but until I was willing to admit it that that I was angry at all is very difficult to to recognize that fact but then even once i recognized that fact that it really that the anger really belonged directed elsewhere then then it was still it was still a struggle to explain why because well i'm not sure well but you had the answer right you said she's asking me to defend the indefensible that was very early on in your posts right so then you say, when have I faced a repetitive situation that caused me great pain where I was asked to defend the indefensible? That, that, I've got to tell you, I mean, that part's not hard. Well, it's funny, it's, it's funny that I can write that and not realize what I'm saying to myself. <laughs> it's kind of strange. Well, it's, 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 uh, the, the, reason, it's, sorry, the reason that it's hard is we're trained not to do it. Right. Like, you know, whenever I have these listener conversations, there's always at some point where, you know, the great God of blankness <laughs> descends upon the brain of everyone. Right. Right. But uh, and that's just this is where we get to the, the gates of propaganda. As I said, we're not we're not allowed to go through and get to reality. Right. So in this situation. Right. I mean, if, if you feel that you're being asked to defend the indefensible and you're irrationally angry based on the provocations, quote, provocations of the present, then you just have to say, well, First of all, I know that I'm angry. That's good, right? A lot of people don't even get that far. 
And then they say, I know what I'm, and then you say, I know what I'm angry about. I'm being asked to defend the indefensible. That's fantastic. That's like, most people never get there. And then all you have to do is say, well, why is this anger so big and so deep? It must be because throughout my life, I have been bullied into defending the indefensible. And that's, that, that last part is not hard to just say, well, this is an old ache from the past. Yeah, I guess that, I guess that is true. Yeah, I guess that's true. But uh, but also in recognizing that that's not what she was asking me to do either, right? That's that's how that's how you know it doesn't belong in the present. Right. I mean, she doesn't say your parents beat you, and I think they're good people, and I think you should praise them, right? Because <laughs> right. then then you'd be entirely justified in saying, you know, you're a, like crazy witch. I'm never gonna like. I, I'm not even paying you for this session. I'm leaving right now. <laughs> Right. And then you go back and say, okay, well, how is it that I missed that little gem of, uh, <laughs> of her approach, right? Right, right. But, um, uh, but no, I mean, you're nine-tenths of the way there, right? You just go to the past, go to the past, right, in order to figure this stuff out. So, uh, and then you can go back and thank her for inadvertently giving you such an amazingly <laughs> great exercise that you learned so much. Yeah, that was, it was very helpful. So I just wanted to uh, air that out because uh, I know I've been... Uh, somewhat negative of uh therapy in the past and uh it, it, it's actually it's actually working so yeah therapy is is supposed to upset you <laughs> no it, it is it's supposed to upset you you know it's like if you go to physiotherapy and it doesn't hurt you're not getting physiotherapy or you're getting a, a hammock or something right Some it's supposed sod. to be annoying it's supposed to be frustrating it's supposed to be frightening right because because that's where we need to go right right Right. I mean, uh, if you're a dancer, you've got to stretch where it hurts. You don't. I mean, you don't sort of bend over and touch your knees and say, "That's great." You know, that doesn't hurt at all, right? You stretch past what you're comfortable with, and that's that's the point. Right, right, right. That makes perfect sense. Let me just uh, throw the net out in case anybody came up with a topic while we were chatting and rambling away. Is there anyone out there with a yearning burning? Speak, my brethren, speak. Okay. Um, I was just uh, wondering uh, about your views on violence. Uh, I guess you didn't join at the beginning of this chat, huh? I didn't, know. Oh, okay. Um, well, what's, uh, what, uh, what's the question, if you could be a little bit more specific? Well, uh, recently, um, I've come across the kind of ideals that um, violence can be uh, can be correct in some situations. Okay, and now of course there are there are two forms of violence, right? In the same way that there are two forms of stabbing, right? I mean, if if uh, if I stab you, that's bad. Uh, if yes. after I stab you, you go to a surgeon who also stabs you, but in order to cut away the bad flesh and stitch you up or whatever, or cut away the ragged flesh, then that's good, right? So, uh, you know, uh, hitting someone with a, like, stabbing someone can be both good and bad, depending on consent, circumstances, intent, and, and also whether or not it is retaliatory. In other words, if I come at you with a knife, then uh, you can pull an Indiana Jones and shoot me, I guess, right? So I just sort of wanted to understand what you meant about uh, violence, whether you're talking about initiated violence or retaliatory violence? Well, um, if I give you an example of something that happened recently, um, I had uh, entered into a shop 
and uh, there were a couple of people uh, having a bit of an argument. Um, uh, I've obviously uh, walked past, not paying any attention at the time, um, and a uh, security guard came up in one of them, uh, and then a fight broke out between the security guard and one of the uh, guys who was arguing, um, and I stepped in to stop the fight. Um, and I was just wondering, what were your views on um, whether this was the right action to take or not? Well, I think it was a. I think if you were able to stop the violence without uh, putting yourself in any particularly dangerous risk, then I think it, I think it was a great thing to do. I think you should uh, be very proud of that. Okay, um, because uh, I was made aware of like um, your uh, kind of views against altruism and uh, things like that? Well, uh, it could be, uh, but tell me what you mean by altruism, because that's a word that is defined in really, really different ways by people. I see, right. Um, well, I mean in the way of um, giving your life to save another? Well, the re if you are a parent, let's say, let's say that you're a parent who is 90 years old, and because you're Anthony Quinn, you have a 20-year-old kid. And uh, that 20-year-old kid needs a new liver. You may very well say, look, I'm 90. I'm probably not going to live for more than another six months or a year. So I'm going to give my liver to my kid and I'm going to die. I don't know. Maybe you give half the liver or whatever. But let's just say it's certainly possible and would be quite understandable for a parent to wish to uh, provide uh, their child life at their own expense. I wouldn't necessarily say that's a bad thing to do. I mean, that's everybody's individual choice. You wouldn't want to force someone to give up their liver, but I could certainly see how you might, um, uh, you might do that, and there would be nothing wrong with it. I see what you mean, yeah. Um, but, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, about, but perhaps you can tell me why it is that you intervened in this fight. Um, well, just uh, through my own models, really. Um, I noticed that the security guard was trying to get away from the fight. I mean, uh, um, the security guard was not in the wrong. He was merely trying to usher the uh, person out of the shop, and uh, the person responded by punching him. Wow. So, I mean... I mean, I, I think I'm, I think, I, mean, I think I would have done the same thing in your situation. Again, if somebody pulls out a gun, I'm the first one to dive to safety. Um, but if it's something that I feel I can reasonably get away with, for instance, if the attacker is maybe no more than five or six years old, then I could probably get away with it if they weren't too tough. But uh, I could certainly understand that if somebody's being attacked, then yes, I mean, that, that to me is just reciprocity in a sense. I mean, that's, that's a little bit like the categorical imperative. Like, if somebody was beating me up and somebody just walked away, I'd rather they helped, you know, if I was being beaten up unjustly. So I could certainly see uh, stepping in in that situation and feeling pretty damn good about it. Well, I mean, um, I try to kind of preach that to my friends and people that I meet, just that, um, you know, uh, I think it was in a movie somewhere that they said, uh, um, it's, you know, you can fear evil men, but it's, uh, um, there's a greater evil, and that is the indifference of good men. Yeah, the only thing that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Well, I, th I think that's right. Uh, I think that's right. I think that I know that for myself, uh, I, I, 
I mean, since I was a kid, I, I don't think I've ever been around. Oh, no, we saw, my, Christina and I saw one in Ottawa, a fistfight, where uh, drivers uh, had hit each other and they were fistfighting and so on. Um, but they were both going at it pretty evenly. And, you know, they're such idiots. I they think that's a viable solution. I mean, I just hope they punch each other in the nuts and can't reproduce. But, uh, but where <laughs> there is an attack, absolutely. I mean, if a woman is being attacked or if a child is being attacked, then I think that we absolutely need to, uh, to stand up. But, of course, those are rare situations in life. At least I hope that you're not in situations where you're constantly pulling bruisers off each other. But uh, for me, I think <laughs> that the more challenging ethics, in the long run, at least for me, uh, is the ethics of uh, you know, speaking the truth and talking about violence where it occurs, where people aren't as aware of it in the realm of taxation and warfare and things like that. Uh, so I think that, that's yeah. a real challenge, and that's something that can be done in the everyday Whereas, uh, you know, uh, waiting, you can wait your whole life for a situation like you were in. I certainly think that what you did was a great thing, and I think you should be very proud. But I, I focus just as a philosopher a little bit less on the jujitsu and a little bit more on the, uh, the every, everyday <laughs> ethics of, of standing up for the truth despite uh, unpopularity and sometimes hostility, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, well, I see what you mean, but I think um, these situations do tend to happen a lot more than people think they do. I mean, um, it's all very well, um, kind of, uh, I don't really know how to phrase it, um, it's already well, all very well thinking that, you know, these kind of things are an occasional occurrence, but, I mean, uh... Sorry, if, uh, just if the, sorry to interrupt you, but what I meant by that was they are an occasional occurrence in the life of most individuals. I like, see, it yeah. doesn't happen to you every week that you've got to pull apart a, a punch-up, right? Of course. Right. So, no, I agree with you. This level of violence is particularly strong uh, throughout the world. And, of course, the, the, the people who suffer from it the most are children, as the children who are aggressed against by far the most in the world because they're so helpless and dependent. But uh, uh, certainly, um, you know, I think that you did uh, a great thing, and I'm sure that the security guard was very grateful. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not sure that he was so grateful. He, I think he was more um, kind of uh, ashamed, to be honest. Right. No, I can see that. <laughs> I can see that. Like we all have this fantasy that that even if we've never taken self defense and don't work out, that that somehow our inner Schwarzenegger is going to come out and we're going to like be these amazing fighters. Which of course is sort of like uh, uh, for like if somebody were to 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 want a real fist fight with me, my level of skill would be equivalent to pretty much the same as if somebody put a cello in my hand and said, "Play something beautiful." Like <laughs> I could make a noise. I see. Yeah. Be many good. Well, I mean, um, it's it's all different on different people, I suppose. I mean, I've grown up in uh, very dodgy areas. I mean, uh, you know, very kind of uh, poor areas or places where crime is quite high, I'd say. Um, and, you know, I've had experience with that. I've had a lot of experience with it, I'd say, uh, and also with martial arts and things. But I think um, a normal person, uh, I think they, I think everybody is uh, should be inclined to help anybody they come across. I, I think that's true, though I think that, I mean, certainly if the security guard had to choose between yourself, myself, and my wife, he would choose you, then my wife, and then maybe me, uh, in that order. Uh, simply because if you have experience in that kind of area, then that, of course, makes you much more valuable in that kind of stuff, right? I mean, if somebody doesn't have experience and they're up against somebody who's a criminal who does have a lot of experience, then uh, it's usually not that good an idea. Yeah, that's, that's true. I, I, still, I still kind of hold the beliefs that, you know, uh, it's every person's um, 
duty to do that for the you know fellow person. Well, but see, here's here's the challenge, right? I mean, if if you're going to put that forward as a moral principle, then you have to counsel your fellow citizens to not pay their taxes and then stand up against the police when they come to arrest them. I think that's fair enough. Well, but I don't think that's a good idea. Yeah. Right? I mean, do you know what I mean? No, of course I, not. I think no. if you're in a situation and you're not facing a representative of the state, uh, and and you can do it with a reasonable assurance of success, uh, because it's not evil is not fought if it's given two victims instead of one. Then I think it's a good thing to do. But uh, I think as a principle, saying we must stand up against all violence, uh, we basically would never sleep and would be in jail very quickly, where we would then get killed by the guards. Very true, yeah. Um, because, you know, you can't... I suppose you can't transfer this to things like uh, uh, seeing videos on YouTube of uh, police abusing citizens. Um, you can't really transfer the same ideology over because it just doesn't work with them. No, absolutely. Uh, any more than shaking your fist at a B-52 is going to end a war. So, uh, absolutely. I mean, that that is... And that's the kind of courage I was talking about earlier where you're standing firm in the realm of ideas which hopefully will help people wake up to the violence which we take for granted. There's an old phrase about Rome, which I've always thought is very powerful, uh, and this was spoken, I think, by an embittered, conquered poet. Uh, and he said, um, they, they made a desert and called it peace. And uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful phrase. And uh, what it means is that an excessive amount of violence and threat will produce the kind of conformity that can be called peace. And, of course, that's the situation that we live in relative to the state and relative to the police and relative to the military, that they possess such an overwhelming amount of force that the society looks peaceful. Uh, there's, not a lot of, uh, um, uh, there's not a lot of fight back in concentration camps, right? They're just trying to survive. And to a much smaller degree, that's similar to where we are. And that's the kind of intellectual courage that we need to keep highlighting that stuff because people won't oppose an evil until they can see it. And most people can't even see this uh, evil that we live under. See. Was there uh, anything else that you wanted to, to comment and mention about that? I mean, listen, uh, good stuff. I mean, good for you. I think that's a, that's a great thing that you did. Uh, and uh, certainly, uh, if you see a bald guy going down uh, under a five- or six-year-old's flurry of fists, uh, be sure to come and help me. <laughs> well, I, I don't mean to... Uh, um, I was just using it as an example. I mean, um, I was just trying to find uh, your position on this kind of thing. Yeah, I, I would never put it as an obligation, uh, a moral obligation for someone, but I certainly think that it's applaudable. But to me, it's, 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 it's a virtue like honesty. Like, I'd never shoot someone for being dishonest, and I would never shoot someone for failing to intervene in a crime, but I certainly do think better of people who are honest, and I certainly do think better of people who, um, uh, who help out uh, a victim of violence. Well, thank you so much. I do appreciate that. Very, very interesting. I think that's okay, thank you. one of the first pugilists we've had uh, on the show. Uh, I certainly do appreciate that, and uh, you know there is uh, there is strength uh, in uh, in dodgy neighborhoods, in growing up in dodgy neighborhoods as well. <laughs> so uh, so that's great. Thank you so much. Uh, was there anything else that you wanted to mention or talk about? Uh, no, I think that was it. All right. Well, listen. Uh, don your cape and go fight evil. Thank you so much. That was uh, that was great. <laughs> was there anybody else who had questions or comments? Uh, what time is it? Ten to six. Ten to six. Okay. I'm certainly happy to take another question uh, or two if they're around. Well, you can tell by the way I use my wok. I'm a Chinese cook. No time to talk. Anybody? 
I'm not a girl, not yet a woman. All right, on that musical outro, we shall uh, uh, thank you, everybody. Sorry? Greg's new job? Yeah, I uh, mentioned that at Just the beginning. If anybody has any additional questions about it, uh, that would be... Well, uh, yes, go ahead. And just a, a closing um, uh, thank you for the opportunity. Oh, listen, my pleasure. It's, uh, I mean, thank you for, uh, uh, for, for taking the job. I mean, uh, there's not many people who are willing to get paid in porn. <laughs> yeah, it's just too bad. Uh, all, all I'm using it for is to uh, hold up the legs of my uh, rickety table. <laughs> right, right, right. No, I, I, I think it's going to be great. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, it's. Uh, uh, there are some some questions as to. Uh, we can just touch on this briefly. Uh, there are some questions that some people are like, "Will Greg be doing the podcast?" And I said, "No, Greg will be doing the pauses in the podcast." Um, but uh, uh, the, 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 there's just so much stuff that 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 needs to be done that is uh, uh is is high priority that is not that i, I just can't get to i uh uh in terms of of uh, i can either go and blow another five or six thousand dollars in advertising like i did over the summer which is good and has paid off uh, or i can pay greg some money to go and do targeted advertising which is to go and call uh, web, uh emails and and websites of, of uh, people who may be interested in this conversation and then we send out an invitation to them uh, I'm interested in upping the value for subscribers to Free Domain Radio. And uh, so uh, Greg will be uh, flying around the country giving back rubs uh, to subscribers. Um, and uh, for extra money, you get the dual fur gloves, which are currently on order. Mink, I think, which is important. Uh, but no, I mean, I'd like to send out a newsletter to subscribers with uh, some more current event stuff. I, I, and that's something, again, the technology, the looking it up, the finding the best one and all that. So Greg's kindly agreed to do that. Um, so there's also, there's lots of forums out there and we won't spam people, but we'd like to go to forums that are relevant to this conversation and post uh, links and, and so on. The books need to get UPC codes uh, and need to get into the stream to be sold through Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And also you can uh, send them off to be, um, to be uh, uh, reviewed, which would be very helpful. Uh, also, there are people who I would be happy to send complimentary copies of the book to who would be interested in it. But uh, getting those phone numbers, uh, sorry, getting those addresses and setting it all up is just ridiculously time consuming. Uh, and um, I think over the long run, um, given that bandwidth is so much cheaper now, uh, I've got about the first 140 podcasts recompiled to about four times the quality bitrate, uh, only twice the file size of added some bass to the ones which were pretty tinny earlier on so there's that process which there's that process which can continue uh there is the submission of podcasts and books to the dig sites there's like all of this stuff that i've just been doing for the last year and a half which is incredibly time consuming and laborious there's also been some stuff which has been talked about which is i think interesting and i think would be pretty cool which is uh, people have said look we've got all these people who are on the board it would be really great if we could uh, chat with them so if i'm on the board and I see that Greg is on the board that I can send him a message saying get back to work. No, I can <laughs> send him a message, you know, with a question or a comment so that, because it's very, very important to, to decouple me from this conversation, right? I mean, uh, it, to some degree, this conversation is a many to one, right? Like I'm sort of the, the hub of this conversation and, and so on. And what I really want to do is enable people to meet each other and stop bothering me. No, to, to meet each other and, and open up that conversation to be many to many and to get myself out of the hub or the middle of the conversation, right? Because the conversation needs to be many to many for it to really grow and thrive. 
And so one of the ways we could do that is to get some software, plug it into community server so that people could have real-time chats if they allow it in their profile uh, to, with, with other people, right? So that any time a woman joins, she can get 900 messages uh, pretty much the moment she comes up. Uh, so, but, but that's it's a couple of hundred bucks. You got to research it. You got to you know buy it. You got to wire it up. You got to test it. And you know that's all stuff that is uh, that I've been I've been handling and managing all of this stuff for like the last two years, and it gets kind of exhausting. And uh, of course, it's getting a bit unwieldy. And the major reason, of course, is so I can hand all of this stuff over, or at least a good chunk of it, to Greg. What what that means is I can start working on the real time relationship book rather than what will happen otherwise, which will be I won't get to start on it till after the conference, which will be mid, well, I guess late January, so I lose a couple of months of revenue on the book, which, you know, hopefully will pay for Greg's salary, even if he has to buy them all. So, um, so that, that's the kind of stuff that, that uh, Greg has uh, very kindly agreed to do, and uh, it is really going to allow me to focus on the stuff that I can do that I think is even more value-added than this stuff, which is to continue to crank out a dizzying uh, amount of content. Were there any other questions about that, or Greg? Is there anything you wanted to add to that? Uh, no, just uh, just sort of wanted to thank you publicly for uh, uh, for the opportunity and why not. I'm happy to be the FDR mule. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Double double the empire, baby. World domination. Uh, at this rate, we will uh, actually rule the world in about 27 years. So uh, let's just keep uh, keep uh, mitosis is the plan. So, uh, was there anything else coming in, Christina, from the uh, the chat window? Oh, Greg. Yeah, Greg asked if we're going to do videos of the real time relationship stuff. Uh, we will for the sections on role playing, uh, particularly since I got the Swedish nurse outfit. Uh, so, no, that's not okay. Sorry, that's more for private consumption, uh, and by that I mean donators and philosopher kings in particular. So. Uh, subscribers maybe too but um, uh, we will be recording for sure we've confirmed audio we have not confirmed video so it will come with um, with uh, audio content but um, uh, we have not decided on the uh, on the video content or not hello Seth hello I have a question I wonder if you could get into a little bit of detail about the Miami conference about what the content is going to be there uh well the uh because i'm this is another reason why i uh, i wanted to uh, lure greg into the uh into the pit which was um i've i've got uh, a lot of ideas for the real time relationship book and uh, originally the conference was going to be centered on upb but fortunately the upb book and thank you so much to those who are buying it and of course those who are praising it extravagantly i think it's uh, well worthy of that praise if i do say so myself but um uh, it was originally going to be on UPB, but I think that the book has cleared up enough issues, at least, that we don't need to have a half-day conversation about UPB. But uh, I think that the real-time relationship stuff is going to... Uh, I'm going to be talking about that in a more structured way, because I will, I will definitely have the structure, if not the first couple of chapters done by the time the conference rolls around. So um, we will be talking about the real-time relationship idea, which, of course, is great for the most immediate aspect of people's lives, which is their relationships, not even their relationship with their family uh, uh, or their parents, which is what Untruth is about, or with ethics and reality, which is what UPB is about, but with the other relationships that they have, adult to adult particularly, and to some degree adult to child. So uh, there's going to be that aspect of it, and Christina has kindly uh, offered and uh, is going to be doing an introduction to cognitive, uh, the cognitive therapy model, which is where I get a lot of the stuff that I claim is my own. 
so there's going to be that aspect. And I think that the cognitive mer- ther- therapy model combined with the real-time relationship stuff, I think is going to be a pretty action-packed day. And of course, uh, we'll be meeting the night before for conversations about whatever, and then we can continue the conversation uh, the Saturday night as well, and uh, uh, followed by a Greco-Roman orgy. Uh, I think we got the ballroom booked for that. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's I think, going to be a pretty action-packed and, and enjoyable uh, a couple of days. Sorry, we had a comment. Togas? Optional, baby. <laughs> Toga. Uh, does, that, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, thanks. All right. Um, and uh, to, uh, to sign up, uh, just there's information at freedomainradio.com forward slash miami.html. The link is also on the main page. Um, we have a number of people signed up. Uh, the room is limited, uh, so please don't uh, leave it to the last minute. Uh, but try and, you know, if you're going to come, then do it now. Right? That's, sort of, that's the thing that, you know, when you're organizing something like this, the more information you have, the earlier. Uh, that's the better. So, I mean, if you don't know, and if you don't know, then great. Just send me an email uh, saying, I don't know, right? Or, or use the form at uh, freedomainradio forward slash miami.html. Use that form and send me stuff in the comments saying this is contingent. I mean, I'll build your PayPal anyway. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, but uh, just, just send me a form saying I'd like to uh, come. If you're at all interested in coming, if you know you're going to come, you know, when you hear this, go to your computer, uh, you know, punch up freedomainradio.com, fill out the form so that we know. Because, uh, you know, if we, if we book X and then we end up with three times X, it's a pain in the neck. And uh, if we book three X and we end up with one X, that's also a pain in the neck. So uh, if you're going to come, uh, you know, don't even <laughs> stop listening to this and go to the website and send the info in so that uh, we can get the numbers squared away. If you're thinking of coming, uh, then give me just a percentage probability uh, and so on. Uh, and w- one gentleman said, well, I may be starting a new job and so on. I would say book now because if you go... Uh, I mean, if you if you if you uh, if you go into a wedding and then you get a job, you just say when you're taking the job. By the way, before I got this job, I had committed to X. And if you say you're going to a conference on psychology, <laughs> something, a conference, uh, uh, an intellectual conference, I don't think that looks too bad, right? So just just you know, book it, and uh, then when you accept the job, just say, by the way, I have this uh, this uh, thing that I'm going to that I booked, uh, you know, back in November. Uh, and um, and thanks again, of course, to the fabulous Miss Laura, who is uh, who has taken over the lion's share of the organization, which means that a little something extra is going to be added to the symposium, and that little something extra is actually organization. So this is a, a real treat, and uh, I really, really thank you so, so much uh, for taking that on. Uh, and I offered her a, a free pass to the conference, but uh, she has declined, so all kudos and nobility to the fabulous Laura, who is... Uh, uh, an incredible negotiator, and it's just getting us some staggeringly great rates. She got 70 bucks off the hotel room, and so you can get a hotel room if you double up with someone for like 100 bucks. So uh, anyway, I hope that we're going to see lots of you there. Uh, I think it's going to be a great deal of fun, uh, really memorable, and of course we will be videoing it and uh, and uh, taping it for uh, for those who, uh, who are overseas. And over many seas, one sea, uh, you should be there, but many seas will give you a break. So that's, uh, that's the story on, uh, on Miami. Was there any, any other questions or comments? Rod. Hey, what's up? No, I was just talking to myself. <laughs> just oh. kidding. Go on. I bet you never get any yeah. penis jokes with your name. So anyway, go on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I have a theme, ladies and gentlemen. It's just not a very elevated one. <laughs> tasteful, tasteful one. It says Christina. Probably quite true. Gutter theme. Um, so I this is probably a request for a podcast. Uh, 
or something. I don't know how quickly you can take care of it. I don't want to stretch out the show too long here. But I have this very um, odd habit of blissfully wandering into conversations with people just talking about how (laughs) I'm an anarchist and an atheist and isn't this great and blah, blah, blah. And I get into these conversations where I just, um, you know, I get this initial like, oh, that's that's uh, kind of interesting and different. Uh, what do you mean by that? And then I explain, well, this, this, and this. And I end up just turning it into a five-minute sales pitch for anarchy. And um, it always, I always get this feeling like I'm just uh, rolling a bowling ball at people sometimes and just – and kind of turning them off like this this occurred last night uh, there are a bunch of uh, german engineers in town uh, working on this project that i'm doing and uh, we went out to dinner and i talked you know a little bit just briefly about because uh, we were talking about politics and george bush and all that crap and, and i just said that well i think george bush is a crook and a liar and all that stuff but of course i think everyone is that's a politician and yada yada and and by the end of my five minutes talking about how I believe that all force is wrong and taxation is theft and all that stuff. It was just like a couple of crickets chirping and they're like, okay, well let's go. You know, let's <laughs> <laughs> right. leave uh, Mr. Molotov to his radicalism. And yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I'm wondering like, what, what impulse do you think? I, it's like, I know what's going to happen with these conversations, but I find myself drawn to them like a moth to flame. Or it's not even like a conversation. It's just it's a five minute monologue followed by awkwardness, and then things just kind of yeah. It's like a wet blanket on conversation sometimes. And it's not what you want, right? This is not the outcome that you're looking for, right? I mean, if I if my point is to spread the ideas, it's not working. And if my point or if my desire is to be uh, to create a comfortable atmosphere with people who are maybe colleagues or maybe not such close friends, but at least acquaintances, that's obviously not working either. So, yeah, Greg's saying I need to be more negative, and it works great. So maybe I'll give that a no. Yeah, um, <laughs> resist the dark side. Yeah. <laughs> Come over. Um, well, I mean, uh, you, you, you heard the conversation that I had with Greg, right? Because you were at it about an hour and a half ago or an hour and a quarter ago. So the first place that you need to go, I would suggest, is if you're in a situation where you are repetitively initiating action that is getting you the opposite of what you want, is to look at uh, the past, right? And to say, okay, how many times have I heard this? um, Now, what what, what you think of as crickets, that that might actually be just the sound of sphincters tightening because (laughs) they're both frightened and German. Uh, so that means that yeah. they're basically turning shit into diamonds. So, uh, so the, the thing that you need to do is you need to figure out, uh, just, just as, as a possibility, it doesn't it may not be the answer, but it's a possibility. When have I spoken and been and, and freaked people out before in the past? Right. Mm, yeah. So what do you what do you have what do you have in that in that dusty attic of of history? The a couple of kind of examples come really easily to mind, and I remember being um, uh, living in Minnesota. My family used we used to heat our home with uh, a wood furnace, and we used to go out once a year and and buy and then load a humongous uh, truckload of um, of wood. And it would be a family day out, and it would usually be kind of happy, kind of stressful, and then sometimes just exhausting. And anyway, we would. 
spend all day just throwing wood up on this truck and stacking it. And I remember during the middle of one of these marathon wood stacking sessions that I was just kind of, and this I was a little kid at the time, maybe uh, nine years old tops. Maybe no, I was probably younger than that. But anyway, I remember having this this grand idea of, you know, this is back when they were taking me to church all the time. And I had this grand idea of how maybe, um, God was, uh, a bunch of aliens or something like that. And they were similar enough in shape to humans that they thought that they, you know, that humans were made in the image of God. And at the time that the aliens were around that, um, that they were uh, so advanced that they seemed like God to humans and all that stuff like that. And I was having just a fun time, you know, just going through this what-if um, scenario. And uh, I just remember the the absolutely just thousand-yard stares on my parents' faces. You know, I was, I'm glad that they didn't, you know, they weren't the type of parents that would have whooped me for such blasphemy, but uh, oh, it, it's ab- it was just it's really hard for parents to watch their kids making a sudden beeline to hell, straight to hell. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but there, you know, there there have been uh, many instances in. I mean, actually, in uh, even recently, when I started getting turned on to libertarianism and things like that, and I realized that all of our paper money was a scam and everything, and I would uh, try to initiate these conversations with my mom about how you know the Federal Reserve is inflating the money supply and this and that and everything else, and and it was always. Um, I just felt like I was giving these long-winded lectures or seminars on economics and the history of money, and I got the feeling that she was was trying to understand me but just couldn't keep up or something, or maybe she was just fogging me and pretending like she didn't understand. Oh, sorry to to interrupt. I I just feel like you're going on a bit too long. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) But but I would say let's go a little back. Let's go back to the wood wood thing, but let's go further back than that. Because I think with the wood thing, you're already in a situation where, like, I guarantee you that you know that you're going to get the crickets, right? Because it sounds like to me you live pretty much on the planet of crickets, right? So, like, shouting into the the big vacuum of cricket noises. Uh, So, I guarantee you that, uh, how old were you when you were doing the space alien God story? Uh, I think I was probably in the neighborhood of somewhere between seven and nine years old, perhaps. Right, so we have to... seems like a long... Because by the time... But by the time you're six months old, you know everything about your parents, right? So you knew for sure what the reaction was going to be there. So we have to go back Mm. further to a time which, and and my guess is that there was a time when you were emotionally charged as a child in some manner, that you were angry, you were hurt, you were upset, you were embarrassed, you were Mm. ashamed, something. And you got the thousand-yard stare, not through stories about gods or anarchists or the Fed, but you got that reaction to something that was really precious and important to you. Mm, yeah. Um, well, the, I think I recently spoke about the fact that uh, when my brother used to torment me so much and I would you know, just beg for, for arbitration or something for my parents and they would just kind of blow it off and tell me that it was my fault for reacting to him and things like that. But that's not the crickets, right? No, it was that. Yeah, it wasn't a crickets. It definitely, it was a. Yeah, so it's it got to be active. something that's 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 even because that was something where this is my guess, right? But that that was a situation where you were reacting to provocation and asking for arbitration. What I'm thinking mm-hmm. about that that may be more fruitful to look at is a situation where you are feeling something very strongly, and 
you are trying to communicate it with your parents, like maybe you saw your first dead something, right? And, and oh. it, just, it, it upset you and, and you were trying to talk about it with your parents and you got the thousand yard stare from something you initiated that was personal and, and vulnerable for you. Hmm. Oh, this is interesting. When you said you, I saw my first dead something, I remember our neighbor, oh, this is a long time ago. I was probably four or five at the time. Um, our neighbor across the road, uh, we lived out in the country on farms, and uh, the neighbor across the road is a very old man who, I remember he had a nice big John Deere tractor, and he'd, he would come over sometimes and help us with field work and things. And I remember he died when I was very young. And I remember being just very, very deeply affected by it. I remember, gosh, this has got to be one of my earliest memories. I remember just saying over and over again, poor John, poor John, poor John, poor John. I mean, out loud in around my parents. And like I was just stuck in this uh, a skipping record thing. And that's, I mean, that's what my mind felt like. I, I had no way to know. I couldn't figure out what I was feeling. I couldn't figure out what it meant to be dead, you know? And it was, I remember just, like now that I look back at it, I, I remember... Or I don't remember, but I, I feel that I didn't get any kind of support or answer for the questions that I had. No, you've got to go further than that. And that's, I think this is bang on. I mean, I think this is it. But you have to go okay. further than that. It's not that you didn't get answers. You were actively rejected. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Right, because when you, when you say something and you don't get a response, the not getting a response is an active rejection. Yeah, especially from parents. Especially from parents, right, of course, right, because there's nowhere else for you to go. You obviously, sure. I mean, you've ha you have a very deep and, and rich soul, and what happened was the knowledge of death, of your own personal mortality and of death itself, yeah. impacted on your consciousness. And, I mean, we're born with the knowledge to die. I mean, we're born, we go through puberty, our body, bodies know how to handle all of this, we know what it is to be dead, we know all of it. If we get out of the mythology, we know what this experience is, right? I mean... It's exactly the same as it was before we were born. My experience of the 22nd century is going to be exactly the same as my experience of the 18th century. Nothing. Not at all. Mm -hmm. not, not missing, not gone, not asleep, uh, without dreaming, just nothing. And so we know all of that, and particularly when we're young, because we've just come out of non-existence when we're young. It's, it, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's more comprehensible to us when we're young than when we're middle-aged, right? Not yeah. that I'm putting you in the middle-aged category, oh, young and vital listener. But, um, but so, yeah, my so pants you, aren't up to my ribs yet. Yeah, yeah, mine are creeping up as we speak. All my ribs are creeping down. I can't figure it out. <laughs> but um, but, but you, you grasped the enormity of this. Oh, it's and huge. It, it's it was, huge. It was the universe then. And, and you also grasped that people who didn't grasp this were dangerous. Yeah. I'm going to repeat that because that's... Yeah, a, make that a, uh, rephrase that because that didn't quite stick. <laughs> People who don't grasp death are dangerous because they have nothing with which to overcome their defenses. Oh, they, oh, oh. look, sorry, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but something just smacked me. Why no. was it that my, you know, my, my parents... I was the youngest in the family. My brother is two years older than me. And my parents had lived across the road from this John guy for, you know, who knows how long, a long time. My dad grew up on this farm. 
So they knew him a long, long time. Why did it seem to me that I was so much more deeply affected by this guy's death than the people who obviously knew him better than me? Your parents were religious, right? Yeah. Well, that's why. When, when uh, those around us don't feel, we feel more. Yeah. Like, sorry, when they do feel, but they repress it, we end up feeling more, right? So if you ever want to see an angry kid, you look for a passive-aggressive parent. You look for a, a mother in particular who's mm-hmm. really angry but never admits it, and then all of her anger gets acted out by the kid, right? Oh, yeah. Now, in the religious mindset, you can't mourn death, yeah. fundamentally. Being sad... Because- about death is, is an affront to God, right? Yeah, right. He's in a better place. He's with Jesus. He's happier. He was old. He was suffering, blah, blah, blah. He's been issued his wings and harp. Yeah, yeah, whatever nonsense they make up about the grim fact of a life ending. Yeah. And so they couldn't grieve because that would be immoral. It would be wrong. It's a lack of faith to grieve about somebody who is dead, right? And, and there is something in Christianity that an excess of grief is indecent. Yeah. Because it is a lack of piety. It is a lack of, you know, acceptance. It's like, it's like being angry at someone for going on vacation, right? Because they're in a better place, right? So yeah. your parents, obviously your dad, if he knew this guy for decades, felt grief. They also, everybody knows the truth deep down, right? That, that you're dead, you're, you become inert, they throw dirt in your face and you're done, right? Mm-hmm. But when they come up with these winged ascending to heaven nonsense, right? They, they, they cut off their own natural process of grieving. They, and through that, they cut off their own perception of death. The Christian means it when he says, I cannot die. He does not believe that he will ever die. He believes that this life, and they believe that this life is a, a stroll through a veil of tears on our way to a better place. And yep. that's why they're so dangerous, because they can't ever confront themselves and they can't ever overcome their deficiencies, right? So, I mean, I'm aware at 41 of the fact that life is short. And one of the reasons that I wanted Greg to take over this stuff is there's a fixed amount of stuff that I can produce with a fixed number of books, a fixed number of podcasts that I can produce before I'm dead. And um, uh, and so I have to sort of manage that number, right? And if I do all this other stuff that is not producing books and podcasts and videos and, and articles and the stuff that I think I can add real value to, that number just goes down. I don't get to talk to the angels in heaven about all my ideas later. When I'm dead, they're gone. And so that's one of the reasons that I overcome my resistances and my defenses, right? If I don't have a happy day with my wife, I don't get that day back later in heaven. We don't get to have these glorious times forever in heaven. One of us is going to die, and I'm just going to regret not having a great day with my wife. So if I have to overcome something in myself to do that, I will do that because I'm going to be dead. Yeah. So people who believe this fantasy that they're going to live forever inevitably go towards a better place and blah, blah, blah. They never overcome themselves. There is such a fundamental vanity and egotism in Christians, and also in postmodernists, I talk about it, the God of Atheists. Uh, they are reality. They define whatever rules they want. And when you live in a world of fantasy, you never overcome your defenses, because fantasy is a defense against reality. So I'm guessing, I, I know I'm, I'll, I'll turn the, the, the mic back to you, but I just wanted to mention that um, you, you grasped an enormous amount not just because somebody died. Children can process death. Children can yeah. handle death, often better than adults can. But you're, you got a lot of, an enormity of the fantasy in your family and the loneliness that comes from the fantasy that they had but you hadn't been infected with. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's something else that just uh, um, 
popped into my head is why do you suppose that I was choosing the words poor John? I mean, if he's dead, he's not suffering, obviously. He's, he doesn't exist. He can't be pitied. He's just not there. Was John so I, was, I have no idea. I, I would assume. Like he was, right? Yeah, I mean, the area I grew up in, it's very odd not to be religious. So, Right. So did I'm just wondering, feel, like, sorry, uh, did you feel that John was a happy person? Um, I see. I, I guess I seem to have liked the guy. So if he hadn't been happy, I'm not sure that I would have, uh, I would have missed him. You know, was poor John because John was dead, or because John didn't live a happy life? That's a darn good question. I don't think, I don't think I ever knew enough about him to know. Did I you, remember. Did you, sorry, and did you understand that the, at that age? Did you understand that he wasn't lying in the ground with worms eating him while he was vaguely alive, but he was dead and gone? No, that 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 doesn't seem to ring any bells at all. It was just that he was he was no longer, you know. But what state did you imagine him in? This is yeah, it's interesting. I don't, I think I was just imagining him completely ceasing to exist as if there was no body left behind or anything. It was just that he had blinked out of existence, I think. Well, but that's interesting because as you say, poor John would not be referable to somebody who had ceased to exist. It must have been something about his life that you were sad about. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that he was... Like still actively farming all the way up into his like late eighties or something, as if he was. I don't know. It, um, was he was he married? Did he have kids? What what was his life like? Uh, he was married. His wife. I remember I was kind of scared of his wife because she had she, she. This is awful. She was arthritic and she had these really large elbows. You know the way that and like knuckles on her the joints. Her joints were very highly inflamed. So I used to think that they were scary. And what was she like as a person? Uh, typical uh, Midwest or Minnesotan uh, farm wife, just completely blank, you know. All right. You know, um, this is good. I mean, this is good because, I mean, we get all of this stuff very early on. The human brain, especially the brain of children, this is like an incredible dead-on radar. Yeah, it's amazing I, that I'm recalling this stuff because I think she moved away very soon after this John guy died, so I that I have that kind of, I mean, I feel certain of this kind of uh, understanding of her, even though I only knew her as a very, very small child. I was struck by something that you said, Rod, about that he would come over to do farm chores with you. Um, Yeah, I think when, uh, oh gosh, hey, check this out. Okay, so um, my dad used to be a farmer um, while when I was young. Before that, he was a trucker, and uh, well, he's a dairy farmer, before that but anyway um we used to have like wheat fields and things like that we would pick rocks all the time all these chores and i remember that my dad used to just completely fly off the handle very often whenever he was doing farm work you know if any machinery would break down he would just you know this dude could swear like no one's business i mean he could string together more curse words into one sentence than you could ever imagine and um it seemed as though um Oh, wow, isn't this great? Okay, so my mom was the type of person that would run around trying to make everything straight and tidy so that my dad wouldn't freak out and have any excuse to yell. 
And I wonder if John maybe was doing that same function with the farm work that he saw my dad stressing out so much about it, and he would come in over to lend a hand. This old man who was very, very, I mean, I mean, really old. He died of just old age, you know. And here was this old guy doing farm work to help a a, a man in his uh, early forties who was freaking out all the time about breaking down machinery and swearing and just you know. Tell, sorry to interrupt. Doesn't that tell you everything that you need to know about John's father? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it does. So poor John is, it is absolutely possible to do exactly the same, same thing when you're 80 as when you're 8. Wow, so poor old John was poor me. Well, by saying poor John and accepting that this guy was both avoiding his blank wife and being, in a sense, enslaved at an unbelievably advanced age to the bad temper of somebody, that they were both empty and both just acting out the past. And the poor John is, he died without growth. He died without knowledge. He died without living. This is absolutely incredible. I can't believe that. I mean, I can believe it, but it's just astonishing that a little child saw that. But that's why we have to be educated so badly. We see all of this stuff like a supernova when we're children. Yeah. That's why we have to be put in public school. That's why we have to be put in church, because we see this stuff with original Uh, star-bright eyes. Yeah. And you saw that you could go that route, that that was a possible route, that you could be frightened and bullied at 80 exactly the same as you were at that time. Wow. This is one of those goosebump moments. This is really amazing. That's why I say everybody's a genius and everybody's a philosopher, even a child of four. Yeah. We get it. We get it all the way down to our, our spines. That's why people have to work so hard to avoid getting it as adults. Yeah. Man, if they ever invent a time machine, I'm going back to give my little kid self a high five. No kidding, eh? We're fucking geniuses. All of us. <laughs> all of us. And even the people who never listen to this conversation are still incredible geniuses. You know, some people say, oh, you know, Steph, the stuff you do is really... Uh, the stuff I do at the age of 41 is like 5% of what you could do at the age of four. <laughs> So, um, so what, <laughs> what's up with my monologues with the Germans then? How is this, how is this going to, uh, let's see. I mean, it's, it's really cool how this traced back to where it, where it led, but now I'm not really sure where that leaves me on understanding the present. Well, even it's, though because, I, it's because you reject the rejection. It's because you won't accept the rejection of your parents. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right, so because you won't accept the rejection of your parents, you have to keep reproducing it. I want to keep feeling the rejection, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's great because if I hadn't felt that rejection last night at dinner, I wouldn't have asked this question and I wouldn't have trailed down this path with you to find it. Right, so you reached to your parents and fundamentally you identified with John because you were terrified of your dad and so was John, right? Yeah. And well, he's still so. terrified of your dad. Yeah. 
at 80. And you're thinking like, oh my fucking God, I could live for another 74 years or 76 years on this planet and die exactly the same as I am now. Yeah. You and know, so it's amazing. You, you tried, sorry, you tried to reach. You knew that the solution was to connect with your parents, right? Yeah. Because deep down, we know that we can only be abused if people don't connect with us as human beings. Yeah. So you tried to connect to your parents and you got the crickets. Yeah. Right? And this pattern has continued. That you try to connect with people about what is the most important thing for you. Yeah. Right? And you get the crickets. Now, that's in how you approach that. And once you don't need the crickets anymore, you won't get the crickets. Yeah. Boy, there's a sentence stand up at a, <laughs> a Chinese <laughs> cookie somewhere, right? A fortune cookie. When you no longer need the crickets, you will not get the crickets. <laughs> But, um, but, but it's true, right? Once you accept that you reached out for your family and you fell off a cliff, uh-huh. and, they, and once you recognize that, that you were completely rejected because of your depth and because, exactly because of your value and your perceptivity, and that you were this incredible resource that could have freed your family even at the age of five, but that they had to just stare at you in horror and in wonder and in fear almost, well, actually not even almost, in fear, because of your perceptivity. And it's true that you were lucky to be in a family that did not beat you for your perceptivity, but merely withdrew from you and rejected you uh, every time you were perceptive, right? And if you had accepted that, it would have been overwhelming to you. It would have been far too much because when we can't connect with people, then we know they're going to abuse us. And if at the age of four, when basically adulthood seems like five lifetimes away, if you'd have said, okay, for the next 15 years, I'm going to be in a prison where people are going to hurt me, you would never have gotten out of bed the next morning, right? You just would have not lost the will to live, right? So you have to reject that lack of connection with people. And so you have to keep trying to connect with people knowing that you're going to get rejected. And that is something, obviously, that uh, shows up probably in lots of different ways and lots of different types of relationships. But uh, if you can accept that rejection, if you don't reject that rejection, then you will be able to reach out because in a way, you're kind of doing to these Germans what your parents did to you. Oh, yeah. You're kind of freaking, like, you, you're kind of pushing them away. Yeah. Right? Because there's ways to talk about, and I've had some requests for doing intros to this conversation, which I'm sort of putting together, but there's ways to talk about things with people that are startling to them, but you have to do it with empathy. And yeah. what happens right now, as you say, it's a five-minute monologue, where your sort of self-consciousness clears and everyone's staring at you like you've become a unicorn and not even a fun kind of rideable unicorn. So yeah. you're not doing it with empathy, right? So this interaction where you're trying to connect with people, you can't, you can't connect with people without empathy. And because you were rejected consistently whenever you tried to connect with your family, for you, intimacy equals a lack of empathy, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. So you need yeah. to put yourself in the sorry. Last thing I'll say, you need to put yourself in the shoes or the lederhosen of the people that you're talking to, right? So if somebody yeah. came up to me when I was twenty and said, "I'm an anarchist and I think that all governments are evil," how would I have reacted? Before I knew any of this, right? We have to be in touch with that part of ourself that never knew this stuff to begin with, except instinctually, and we have to figure out how to bridge that gap, right? And the first thing to do is to acknowledge yeah. that the ideas sound crazy. Well, it's interesting because I, I, I do feel that I often have a, a pretty good sense of empathy that I can 
I can get I read vibes or whatever you want to call it, but uh, it seems like during these five minute monologues that just switches off completely. And then I kind of snap out of it all of a sudden and look around and then hear the crickets. And I'm like, Oh crap, I did it again. You know? <laughs> right. And, uh, and then of course, then I, I kind of do this, this nervous backpedaling and, I'm, Oh, you know, that's just my opinion and blah, blah, blah. And you know, I'm, I'm kind of unusual, <laughs> you know, and then everyone just has this nervous laugh and then that conversation dies. So, right. And, and you have to love the truth enough to stop doing that. Right, because you know right, that right. you're detonating the conversation for these people, right? Yeah, absolutely. You, you're driving them. There's a hostility in what you're doing. You're angry, yeah. right? Because you're driving people away from the truth. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because right? then the next time they hear about anarchism and pacifism, they're going to flash back to, you know, that crazy guy who was, like, talking like he was spitting dead birds out of his mouth or something, right? But, right. but, uh, right. but what you're doing is you're, you're angry at your parents for having rejected your soul, your being, your depth, your perception, and uh, you are, uh, you're taking it out on other people, right, by alienating them from a conversation that could save them. Yeah. Very good. I'm going to, this is the next step. All right, well, listen, uh, we're going to, uh, what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to mail you a box of crickets, and you can practice <laughs> at home. Uh, if you can well, take the interest off the crickets, you'll be ready to go out and scare the Germans again. I can practice all the time because I have tinnitus, which is a constant ringing of the ears. So if, if the room is silent, it sounds like crickets anyway. So I'll just keep doing role-playing with my ears. That's excellent. Um, I know that uh, you are hoping to replace that with Stephitis, which is the constant hearing of vaguely gay podcasts. But uh, until the radio station's <laughs> up, that's going to be tougher. <laughs> okay. All right. Well thanks. well, hey, thanks again. This was really, really fun. Thanks a lot. That was a great story, and uh, thank you so much for sharing that. All right. I'm not even going to imagine or pretend to take any other questions uh, because it's 6.30 and uh, the philosopher must eat. So uh, thank you so much, everyone. It was a great, great show. I appreciate everybody's participation and attention on these wonderful Sunday chats. And uh, just remember, it's less than a week to the first salon and uh, less than two months. It's slightly over two months to the symposium. So go go to the computer, freedomainradio.com forward slash Miami. .html. Thanks, Charlie. And uh, I will talk to you guys next week. Have yourselves an absolutely wonderful, wonderful week. And thank you again for making everything that we do here possible.